Hey, everybody. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks weekly podcast. We missed you last week, but we are back. Chris Newmark and I have a uh, kind of a new uh, new way to approach the Newmark is Newsmakers. We'll get into that. Later on, I'll speak with Mike Favet. He's the CEO of Neuropace. Neuropace, of course, one of the pioneers in neurostimulation. We'll talk with Mike Favet about how Neuropace is working to uh, to present neuromodulation as a potential treatment for drug-resistant epilepsy and sort of the challenges that go with uh, bringing a new treatment modality into uh, into a, a, uh, an area where drugs are prevalent or, or dominant. So a uh, great conversation with Mike on that. We'll have Mike at Device Talks West, our conference, which is coming up in October. Mike will be on a panel that will uh, feature leaders in neuromodulation talking about how they are building their markets for their cutting-edge devices. So make sure you uh, you don't miss that. Go to devicetalks.com to register for Device Talks West. If you register now, our early bird rate is in effect. You'll save $300 off the $695 rate. So uh, that's $395 for two great days of networking, insights, and connection. So uh, make sure you, again, join us at Device Talks West. It's happening October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. It's going to be a great event. Go to devicetalks.com for more information. While you're there, check out our other podcasts, of course, and also check out our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. We've got a Device Talks Tuesdays coming up this Tuesday at 4 p.m., Brought on by our friends at T Connectivity, we'll be exploring some of the critical technology that's uh, really driving the uh, electrophysiology uh, uh, movement. And uh, it's called How Connectors Specifically Designed for High Channel Count Catheters Can Ease Customization Challenges and Improve Manufacturing Efficiency. TE Connectivity always does a great job on their Device Talks Tuesdays. They're always amongst our more more popular, so uh, make sure you register for that can register for that, listen to our podcast, and of course, register for Device Talks West, all at devicetalks.com. So uh, we'll get this podcast started. I've got some uh, speaker announcements at the end of the podcast, keynotes that we'll be having at Device Talks West. It's going to be a great program. So uh, let us get this episode started. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. Awesome. I, I have a, a belated uh, birthday wish for you. You had a birthday recently, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, happy Tom. birthday. Yeah. Yeah. And Father's Day. So back to back. So you were just like, you get them over, over with, over and done with all at once. Same weekend. So, but uh, yeah, good good times. Went and saw a comedy show with uh, with my wife in uh, downtown St. Paul. Saw Nate Bargatze. He's oh, a, he's, he's a, a funny guy. Yeah, yeah, he's good. Yeah. Yeah, I good, went to see stuff. see the new Spider-Verse movie with my boys on Monday, oh, Juneteenth, that, which was great. That looks it's good. Very good. Very good. Fantastic. Highly recommend it. Three, th- six thumbs up, six thumbs up from the Fantastic. Yes. So any good gifts from Father's Day and or birthday? Anything you want to share? I, I got a new power drill. Like Woo. the old power drill broke. I mean, that's a useful thing. You need a power drill and screwdriver stuff breaks. All the time. So, so, yeah. yeah. So it's fantastic. Good. That's great. 
Fantastic gift. It was really cool. It's really I got, nice. I got my Ember mug. You can see it here on the screen. It's oh, the, I love it. They keep my keeps my coffee hot at 144 degrees. That's so, pretty great. Yeah, I love gifts that you I would never dream of buying myself. Like, sure, I'd like to have one, but but you know that's the worst thing in the morning when you you know when I get really busy with a project and then I reach for my coffee and it's cold. That's just oh, you know, it's just that. so sad. And you can't microwave like, it. If anyone is microwaving coffee out there, can't do it. Oh, you know, when I, I do, I do, I confess, I do microwave my coffee sometimes <gasps> when, like, when it's cold and it's like lava hot and then for the next hour. You, know, you like, talk to me about grinding my own beans. How dare you <laughs> microwave your coffee? What do I do if it's cold? Do I heat it on the stove? <laughs> do I turn it? I mean, I guess this is a good time. Here to make, I could turn it into iced coffee. I could, could do that. That's a, that's always a good move. Throw I, some I, rice I, in a glass. Like just, I may saucepan it uh, or I'll uh, make a new cup of coffee, depending yeah. on on how cold it is. All right. Well, we've covered all the important topics. We got it. Yeah. Let's see everybody. (laughs) Have a great weekend. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) So we're, we're doing a bit of innovation here, uh, here at device talks weekly. You and I talked uh, recently and you came up with some great ideas this week as to how we might approach the, the newsmaker element differently since we have our fabulous fast five podcast. That's delivering the top five stories every day. Danielle and Sean are rocking it with like the top headlines every day. And if you're not listening to that, that podcast, you're missing out. So you're missing out if you're not listening to it. Well, you're listening to us. Thank you so much. (laughs) But you should listen. It's it's a quick 10 minute dose of news every day. So, so it's fantastic. You know, but then at the same time, then, you know, yeah, like, I mean, I think there's some weeks where there's just going to be so much news. We go through the, all the the new markers, newsmakers. But I think this week we're going to try doing a new markers, newsmaker. Mm, why don't you tell the tell the folks at home what that is, Chris? How how are we approaching this? With the caveat that you know we may tinker with this because we're innovators, like all of you out there, we're innovators. Well, I mean, kind of this week there's just like this, you know, really large trend that we saw i mean like like i mean so like in, in the middle of the week we had uh we had phillips and uh biotronic they were you know announcing a uh you know partnership in the uh, cardiovascular devices space phillips has this whole you know symphony suite and biotronic is gonna be uh you know developing you know as you know products and services for uh you know, treating cardiovascular and endovascular diseases. So they're, they're packaging these together. And I mean, I like since, you know, since the pandemic and we had like kind of all these economic things going on that are presenting, you know, challenges, I, we were just seeing a lot more of these, you know, types of partnerships yeah. between and, companies. And I think the point of the, what we'll try to do with the newsmakers or the newsmaker going forward, the new market newsmaker is... Instead of looking just over the past week for the top news, look over the past month or so and try to find the trends, the big picture, zoom out a bit, try to connect some dots. So hopefully we'll exactly. uh, we'll be able to develop some uh, some discussions that'll sort of again draw point points attention to a bigger trend, a bigger development in uh, in medical devices. So and we'll also look at cool tech. I think if we've got a bunch of cool tech coming out. We should talk about cool tech. I think we've got a lot of big people moves. We can talk about big people. Exactly. So uh, we'll 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 try to take a more thematic base with our news marker, newsmaker. The newsmaker being the topic, we may talk about multiple companies. Why not? Because there's so much. Why going not? On. Yeah. Or some week we might have newsmakers because there's just so much news going on. So we'll All just right. yeah. So so we taught you 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 introduce the and folks we're we're kind of doing this on the fly right now. We haven't really scripted this out. Chris and I don't script things out. 
Um, yeah. You may have noticed. <laughs> uh, We're like a jazz band. We're we are. Of, yeah. <laughs> we, we will scat. We will do 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 do. But so we introduced the Philips and Biotronic uh, uh, item, news item, which uh, Sean Hooley wrote uh, earlier this week. Uh, we can explore this one a bit more deeply, Chris, or do you want to kind of throw out the other items first and then we can talk about things that, you know, lessons that we're kind of drawn from. I agree with you with Philips Biotronic. I think it's just a, another move by a large industry player. It's already been sort of targeting the ASC market to really strengthen their offerings there and to try to provide their exactly. products to alternate care sites. And we're going to I mean, see much, of much more would, of that. Yeah, I mean, kind of what I'd say is, I mean, occasionally we we would have stories on mass device about like you know com- larger companies doing some kind of partnership but um you know definitely in in the past year or two we're just seeing a lot more of it and uh my sense is that overall this is a good a good thing that you know we we're seeing a lot more cooperation in the industry i mean perhaps some of these partnerships in the past would have been M&A deals but you know, with interest rates higher, with you know, just more expensive to run a business, they're they're not doing this. But I I think this greater cooperation, um, it, it's got to be. I, I would suspect this just has to be a good thing that that we're seeing a lot more of this. And I I was thinking it'd be interesting. I mean, because the other the other thing that really stuck out, the other story that really stuck out to me, um, this week in the space, was uh you know, GE Healthcare. Um, announcing a um, you know a partnership with uh, Depew Synthes, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know in in the spine tech space and uh, and G Healthcare is especially interesting because they have just been on a, on a tear over the the past year. I mean they I mean they're they're now like about half a year as an independent company, uh, you know spun out of uh, GE, but you know since um, you know really in the in the year leading up to that spin out and since then they've been. Uh, They've been, you know, just doing a, a whole host of of partnerships that, you know, uh, that appear to, you know, there, there appears to be this very concerted strategy to partner with other companies and, you know, you know, put them in a, in a stronger position to grow, you know, going forward as this, you know, independent med tech company. So this will this will uh, bring GE Healthcare's OEC three D imaging system. Uh, in in line with Depew's uh, extensive spine portfolio, so exactly. I yeah. mean, I mean, the, yeah. in this OEC three D surgical, you know, s- you know, imaging system, and they've got this uh, C arm that uh, provides mobile uh, CBCT imaging, and you know, so I mean, they, I mean, they're talking about like uh, it enabling like interoperative three D volumes, two D high de- high definition imaging, uh, you know, a large anatomical field of view. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you know, you know, Phil, Phil Ratcliffe, you know, a CEO of GE Healthcare's imaging guide therapies business, like described this as kind of like a game changer for clinicians. And, you know, now, now they can package all these Depew Synthes, uh, pro- spine procedure products mm-hmm. around it. And as you mentioned in the, in the article that came out on the 21st and you wrote it, uh, G has now collaborations with Boston Scientific, with Electa, with Medtronic, yeah, with uh, Sinopharm or Sinopharm. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. I think it's Sinopharm. Yeah, but I'm I'm with you. And when I read these articles, I and I I feel like I'm going to be thinking back to this conversation with Mike Mahoney at Boston at Device Talks Boston, Mike Mahoney of Boston Scientific, that we had at Device Talks Boston, where we're we're at we're talking about 
robotics programs. And Mike Mahoney's point was like, look, we do this really well. We're going to continue to do devices well, let Intuitive do robotics really well, and let's not spend money on things that aren't our core business. And I just, it's interesting to see if we'll see more of these types of partnerships as sort of an, a, an expression of that idea that medical device companies, everyone doesn't need to have their own surgical robotics program. Everyone doesn't need yeah. to have their own 3D imaging program. Partnerships are available. There's there's a, an opportunity for greater collaboration and ecosystems. Hopefully that drives value. Hopefully that drives adoption. Um, you know, the healthcare sector needs all of this. We need more products to ambulatory surgery, ambulatory surgery centers. Uh, that's where the future of care likely will be as hospitals get phased out more and more. So, uh, so it feels yeah. as if there's a reaction. The industry is sort of slowly reacting to that reality and finding ways to collaborate, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I could tell with this uh, with this G Healthcare uh, Depew Synthes partnership. I mean, there was well, actually some of the chatter on LinkedIn was about how the, there were a lot of ambulatory service, you know, mm-hmm. surgery center opportunities with this partnership. Like, so the, you know, G and, you know, Depucentes could go in together to, you know, kind of like, uh, like line up more of these, uh, you know, uh, ASCs as, as partners. So it's, uh, it's just clients. So the, I mean, it, 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 there, there's such a, a push with that. And I mean, it's interesting in the past. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're talking about robotic surgery, um, I mean, you had like, uh, I think there was this real, I think with the, the really, the, the, the big companies in med tech, there was this real, um, you know, the, the sense of urgency that they needed to get into surgical robotics because they had all these surgical devices and they, they, you know, they didn't want to be selling them around someone else's robot. So it's like, oh, well, we need a robot that we can sell all this stuff around. But as we've seen, you know, it's been it's been challenging. I mean, I mean, Med- Medtronic has been selling Hugo's in Europe. They're looking to get in the U.S. But I mean, it's it's undoubtedly, especially with supply chain, been been challenging for Medtronic. And I've even read read an analyst report where they were, you know, asking like, is the Hugo differentiated enough from Intuitive's Da Vinci, you know, to uh, you know, to truly compete in the U.S. I mean, right. so I mean. I mean, this. I mean, Medtronic's still sticking with Hugo, but you know, it's 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 been a it's been a challenging road with it. And you know, Johnson Johnson. I mean, they've got their Atava robot, but we're still like wait and see. Like they're you know we're still waiting to hear from you know Johnson Johnson what what they're gonna do with that. And I and I think the deal that sort of best represents uh, what a Boston Scientific could do would have been the deal between Abbott and Stereotaxis that uh, they announced last month. That Sean yeah. Hooley wrote about, where yeah. they're they're going to be basically using Stereotaxis's robotic system, their electro robotic system to pair it with Abbott's electrophysiology offerings. And it was interesting because I had I did it. We launched our first Abbott talks uh, about a week and a half ago now, and I talked with uh, Philip Adamson, Dr. Philip Adamson, who's the divisional vice president and chief medical officer for the heart failure division, and Christopher Piokowski, who is the divisional vice president and chief medical officer of electrophysiology. And in that conversation, I asked about whether or not electrophysiology procedures could be done over a longer distance if robotics was was brought in. And this was prior to the announcement. I did the interview prior to the announcement with uh, Stereotaxis. So I don't know if he was sort of holding back. He kind of paused and said, certainly, you know, there'll need to be someone on site, obviously, to insert the catheter, but there's no reason why a more experienced person from far away can, can guide the, the procedure and hopefully de- deliver superior care. 
And we might see something similar. This is off topic a little bit. This isn't a partnership, but I talked with Ariel Sutton at uh, Imperative Care, which is neurovascular, and they're developing a robotic system to to help them get yeah. to further reaches of the brain. Um, so it's just interesting to see robotics sort of, it, it very much feels like it's taking that next step from these this big capital crazy product that the companies are, yeah. are, are committing a lot of funds to so they can have a channel upon which to sell all of their devices to something more selective and more targeted and maybe more digestible by hospitals and ambulatory surgical centers, surgery centers. I, I would say that I, I thought it was, um, this is going off on a tangent, but I mean, intuitive in their recent earnings calls mm-hmm. that they were having a lot of success. Like they, they're really getting into the data, you know, they, they said, and like making uh, the case to health providers of, you know, of all these better outcomes with these, these large robots. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's, that's, uh, you know, that, that can help them. Uh, you know, they're, they're still, you know, finding ways to do it with those large capital expensive robots for hospitals. But absolutely. I mean, if you, you listen to Gary Guthard's interview we did with him at Device Sucks West last year, he talked a lot about data. If you talk to Robert Cohen of Stryker, if you listen to the podcast we did with him, uh, and he, of course, was a device ox Boston as well. I mean, we can get to the point where the data can inform you as to w- what type of implant to use in a particular person by looking at their their age, their health status, do they have diabetes, what's their weight, what's yeah. their BMI. I mean, all these things that can just be factored in to ensure that they get uh, that they they get the 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 um, the right implant, uh, the optimal implant is what I'm working for to give them the best possible outcome. And the people so, with the more skeptical uh, mindset will be like, well, but the healthcare data is a mess. So, you know, like, can they, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that data management yeah. is always going to be key. So going back to our original theme about, about partnerships, it certainly seems that there's a lot more uh, of a collaborative spirit in medical devices. And it's going to be interesting to track that. Uh, track I definitely think forward. like G and G healthcare has definitely been one of the real, real leaders in that, in that trend. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just, it's just pretty wild going over the, you know, this whole list that, you know, like they're collaborating with Boston Scientific on cardiac care in Southeast Asia. They're, um, you know, they're, you know, Siemens Health and Ears, you know, you know, merged with Varian, you know, to to boost itself in the radiation oncology space. G Healthcare in, instead decided to collaborate with Electa. Um, yep. I mean, you know, they... You know, they this this whole ambulatory surgery center space. They're uh, partnering with Medtronic to, you know, w- with their products and services to get into that you know space. Then yeah, to get to get make more inroads in this Chinese medical device market, they uh, announced a long term joint venture with Sinopharm, which is you know like um, one, you know one of the largest you know like life sciences companies in the world. It's like, I mean, it's kind of when I read the description of what Sinopharm is in China, it's like if CVS was merged with Pfizer and, you know, and, you know, maybe Boston Scientific or, you know, some, it's just, you know, just such a huge, huge company in the, in the Chinese market. So, I mean, that, that, that definitely got my attention when they said they were partnering with them there. So. And just revisiting the surgical robotics side again one more time. We had Martin Bueller at uh, the, our Device Talks Boston slash Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum. They're 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 looking at some big news this year. Uh, he kind of hinted at it. Uh, and we had uh, you reported on Medtronic hiring uh, Ken Washington yeah. as uh, their new technology officer, and he has robotic experience at Amazon, more of a consumer uh, focus. So there also might be yeah. clever ways of of 
of steering these bigger oh, projects. I mean, Washington had experience in both automotive and aerospace. Yep. And, you know, you still yep. you need to make sure things don't break in those spaces. I definitely don't want to be on a plane that has a park break. So, so that's what that's what we're seeing. I think that's an interesting trend. And um, if folks have thoughts on this, uh, make sure you share it on the so on the uh, LinkedIn the LinkedIn post where you've perhaps found this yeah. do you, are you, uh this podcast absolutely yeah i mean do you see i mean do you, are you seeing this trend as well that there's a lot more um openness to collaboration and partnerships right now in the industry and uh is this uh you know is uh, overall does this feel like it's a good thing yep and it, again it, and i think we'll get into this later on but it kind of goes hand in hand with the divestiture the divestitures that we're seeing where companies are just uh shelving or selling off non-core businesses so they can focus on what they're good at and maybe partner for the rest. Yeah. So it uh, definitely feels like we're in a, this really like serious reassessment period right now. I mean, we got, we got through the pandemic and, you know, and, you know, just, just having these, you know, just, just, you know, right, right now with, you know, it being, you know, costing more to run a business, you know, like, you know, med tech companies and, and companies in general are kind of like doing a, like a serious reassessment. Like what, what are we doing here? What's, what's our core thing we should be focusing on and you know like and like you know what you know, what what should we stop doing what should we spin out or you know or, or partner with somebody you know instead of like developing ourselves you know so it's uh yeah it's going to be i i i think it's uh it's going to be really interesting to see how things shake out by the end of this year absolutely no it feels like there's there's some resetting going on so good stuff yeah. uh we'll get into the interview now i just uh we didn't really talk about this but one story that I f- will find interesting to follow is uh, Brooke Story being named president of surgery yes. business at BD, uh, particularly since they sold off some of their surgical instrumentation, most of it, I think, to Steris this week as well. So it's going to be fascinating to see what BD's plans are for the surgery business unit. Hope to have Brooke Story on the podcast in a couple of, hopefully a couple of weeks. We'll see what her availability is. She might need more than that. But uh, and, exciting exciting to see where bd might yeah, be yeah i mean yeah and, and yeah she's 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 definitely one of the one of the executives to watch in our in our industry so that that was really cool news and i you know i just have to add okay so you know we're talking on friday um the uh mass device plus five today the day before you know we were leading with the news of uh brooke story becoming president of the surgery business of, at bd and then we also had news in there of uh integra life sciences uh naming uh lay daniels knight as their uh cfo and I just got to say, it was uh, it was actually really cool to see a plus five with two major personnel announcements, and it was both uh, you know, African American women. It's very cool. That's great. Yep. yep, very good to point that out. All right, well, that's uh, that's our news new markers newsmaker new markers newsmaker. <laughs> <laughs> Parentheses S because there's multiple. We'll figure, we'll figure out the branding, out. but uh, we're spent. We'll, yeah, we'll but, get uh, there. <laughs> All right. Well, great job as always, Chris Newmark. Fantastic. Well, Mike Favette, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back, sort of. You were on a podcast I had worked on previously when you first joined Neuropace in 2019. So this is a nice opportunity to kind of reconnect and see how things are going. As I did then, I'd like to do again, just sort of understand your path into medical devices, because I'm assuming some people didn't hear that previous podcast and they might want to know, how did you find your way into the industry? I started in medical device way at the beginning of my career. I started coming out of engineering school. I got a degree in mechanical engineering 
over 30 years ago and took my first job in the medical device industry. I worked for cardiac pacemakers, which was a division of Eli Lilly, became Guidant, the cardiac rhythm management of, of Guidant at that time. Okay. And the rest of my career has really followed from that. I've, I really fell in love with the medical device space. I've had an opportunity to work in a number of jobs, a number of different types of companies, a number of different areas with related to medical technology over those years, but it's been my entire career. What was it that drew you to medical devices? Was it the coolness of the tech or was it the mission of helping people? I'm, I'm guessing it's a blend of both, but uh, I should have you answer the question, not me. <laughs> it, it, it is a blend of both. It's the, the combination of the benefit, the impact that medical technology has on people's lives, the positive impacts that the things that we do have on society and have on individuals that, that have medical conditions. And then the technology that goes along with that. I, I often think about the challenges of working in medical devices where you have really challenging, interesting technology that has to work with people, the physiologic connection of the, of the technology back to people, and then the complexities of the system that that operates in, working with physicians that do recommendations and, and administer the therapies the healthcare system, the regulatory process, the, the complexity of all of that together has always been appealing to me to find a way to, to work through that and achieve those, those positive benefits for, for patients in society. So just looking at your career, you were with Guidant at the time of the Boston Scientific Acquisition. Talk about that experience. It was certainly one that from the outside looked like it had some difficulties, some challenges integrating one big entity into another. Can you give us a, an insider's view? I knew you were just there for a couple of years. You were vice president of R&D there, but what was that experience like? It was my first experience going through an acquisition. I had been with Guidant from the start. I was with the medical device division of, of Eli Lilly that became Guidant, stayed there for the 10 years that Guidant existed, and then was acquired by Boston Scientific as part of that process. I'd never been through that um, an acquisition within any business before. And so it was a firsthand experience for me about what it's like to merge two companies together, different cultures that, that go along with that. For my personal experience, I was with Boston Scientific only for a couple of years because I got my second M&A opportunity very quickly after that as Boston Scientific spun out the cardiac surgery business that I was with. Ah. So I was able to, to leverage some of that experience that I had on guidance within Boston Scientific to find a buyer for the cardiac surgery business and then ultimately move it to a new owner as well. As you know, within the medical tech space, medical device space, mergers and acquisitions happen regularly. And that's been very helpful for me to understand through my own experiences, what it's like to do that. That was on a very large scale. There's, there's other times where it's on obviously a much smaller scale as well. So at what point did you know you wanted to go from engineering to sort of uh, the executive role? Because you were CEO at a couple of companies, Sinaitis Medical and Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics. And then you did a stint on the dark side when you went to the private equity group that we can, we can talk about for a moment. But uh, did you always know you wanted to be involved in operations? I knew relatively early in my career that I wanted to move into broader um, management, ultimately management, but broader aspects of medical device. I, as I mentioned earlier, started my career coming out of engineering school, doing engineering work, development work, and, and manufacturing engineering work. I fairly quickly went on to get my MBA knowing that I, I had interests beyond engineering. I wanted to combine together that understanding of the technology and the development aspects with the 
how to merge in those other parts of the of the business as well. I didn't know where my career was going to take me back then, um, but I knew relatively early that I wanted to have opportunities that were cross-functional um, starting in engineering, but had cross-functional opportunities beyond that. As I went through my career, I became more and more interested in moving into management roles and into broader operational roles. I had an opportunity to, to work in a number of different departments within organizations and ultimately bringing those together in an overall management position has been really a, a very rewarding part of my career and has worked out really well to be able to pull those together to get to where I'm at now. Did you ever spend any time in the sales and marketing side? That's a common path, I think, for folks who go into the executive branch from engineering. They kind of use that as a bridge, but you didn't, you know, I don't see that on your resume. I did through my career a couple a couple of different times. When I was at Guidant, I had a period of time where I was part of the sales field sales organization. I went out into the field. I was working in Michigan, supporting the cardiac rhythm management business in the sales function. That was my first opportunity really to understand how the technology that we've developed applied to patients, how the doctors interacted with it. Um, and then I was able to bring that back into in-house positions after that. And then later in my career, I had general management responsibilities that included the commercial parts of the organization, sales and marketing within Guidant Boston Scientific, as well as um, more recently, before I took the CEO job at Neuropace, I spent about a year, nine months as the chief commercial officer for that business, um, running sales and marketing, um, leading up to the transition. So um, yes, I had that experience along with a number of other functional experiences um, that really helped pull those pieces together. We're, we're talking a lot about engineers sort of finding ways to increase their number of uh, opportunities, paths that they might take. If an engineer is listening to this and they're thinking about how they might migrate to a different part of the medtech industry. What advice would you give them? Is it the is the MBA? Is that really the critical piece you need, or should they go looking for opportunities at a sales and marketing part of the business? What's a good step for an engineer to to take? The MBA is helpful. It gives you the theoretical understanding of what the commercial part of the business or the operations part of the business is like. There's nothing that replaces real world experience. So often you're getting an MBA to allow yourself the opportunity to, to get work experience in other parts of the organization. That, that's what I did when I, when I got my MBA. It was something that enabled me to move on to other roles in the future. Um, having those opportunities, it's not a fit for everybody, but for people that have that interest, there's a tremendous amount of value of taking a expertise within one part of an organization and then being able to leverage that into, into others. And I found with my experience in moving from a engineering role to a field role that I was able to bring that in-depth understanding of the product and the way that the product worked and the way that the in-house part of the organization worked to be able to use that experience to be more effective in, in a field role. And then similarly, when I came back from the field role in-house, the knowledge of the way the medical device technologies work in the field, the way you sell them, the way you support them, that's been invaluable bringing that back in. So for, for me personally, a lot of a lot of great experience that came out of that. And for people that have that interest, an MBA is a helpful step to get to it. Not necessary for for everybody, but it's a it's a helpful understanding base to be able to build off of. Interesting. And you get the network, I'm sure that that is always a help. So let's move into where you are current day. Well, you went, you did move over to KCK where you were a managing director, and I think that's when I first met you on the private equity side. 
that was 2016. Was that a move? I'm going to do this for a couple of years. So it gives me a good perch from upon which to see my next operations opportunity. Or, or did you think private equity was the way you wanted to go? I didn't know going into it. It was a significant shift for me. I had spent all of my career up till that point on the operating company side of medical technology. A great opportunity for me to move over into the venture, the venture investing, venture capital side of the med tech space. And I went into it knowing that I would be learning a lot. I'm really looking forward to that new opportunity and unsure whether that was going to be the rest of my career or if it was going to be something that I did for a number of years and then came back to the operating the operating company. It turned out that it was something I did for about three years before coming back to the, the MedTech operating company role. Tremendous experience that, that I had there, lots of understanding of the way that side of the industry works, thinks, um, and being able to apply that back into an operating company role has been, been invaluable. But as, as I went into it, I didn't know um, whether that was what I would do for the rest of my career, or if it would be something I did for a while. Great. Well, I want to get into NeuroPays, but before we do, I'm just curious, do you still see yourself as an engineer doing all these non-engineering jobs or have you uh, given up that part of your uh, of your DNA and you're no longer identify that way? It has been so many years since I did actual engineering work that it would be um, hard for me to, to claim that <laughs> something that I, that I still do. That said, my mind still works that way. I'm very much an engineering, the engineering mind, the thinking process that goes along with that. Yeah. So I, I would never give that up kind of as my fundamental, fundamental base that I, that I built off of, but I'm, I am so, so many years away from having, having the skills to be able to do that. You're not going to profess it publicly, but internally you, you get it. Yeah, you get it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, let's talk about the decision to join Neuropace. You did that in 2019. Neuropace uh, was one of those companies that I started covering the industry in 98, 97. And I remember writing about Neuropace back then, getting a series, whatever, maybe A or B. It was one of those companies that had been around forever. Really, I think, was the flag bearer for the neurostimulation, neuromodulation space for so long. What was it about the company in 2019 that you saw that said, this is a company I want to take to the next level? I had an opportunity with Neuropace um, being on the board of directors for a few years prior to becoming the, the CEO to really mm -hmm. understand the technology, the market, and the people within the, within the organization. As I mentioned, I also was the chief commercial officer for about nine months prior to taking the, the CEO role. So I, I really had a front row seat into the company and the technology. And when the opportunity came up to apply for, to put, put my name into consideration for the CEO role, um, that was an, a really well-informed decision for me, given the experience that I had with the company up until that point. What I loved about the company at that time, still, still love about the company, is the drive to move a new kind of therapy into the market, the whole space of neuromodulation to treat medical conditions is still in the early days. There's been good adoption of it in a number of therapy areas, but there's still a large gap of people who are not well treated by medications, by pharmaceutical, by pharmaceutical treatments that neuromodulation has an opportunity to, to be able to come in and play a big role. Neuropace is at the forefront of that. It's got a, we, we have a very, very unique technology that 
has applicability in epilepsy where we're, we're currently treating patients with, with epilepsy, opportunity to be able to expand from that. I'm a big believer overall that the neuromodulation technologies is going to be a big growth driver for medical devices in the future and, and an opportunity to be in a role in a leading company within that space was, was really appealing. And where was Neuropace in uh, development of the uh, its system, the RNS system, in terms of regulatory approval, a place in the marketplace? Where was it in, in 2019? In 2019, the product was commercial in the United States. We had our first generation of the product that was being sold. We were getting adoption from a number of centers, early adopting centers and, and early adopting physicians within those centers. And the company was at a spot where we needed to accelerate the growth adoption, move from that early adopter phase to broader acceptance utilization of the technology. Some of that included the need to make improvements to the, to the device and the technology. Some of it was clinical work that we needed to do to, to get the word out about the benefits of the unique approach that we're taking to providing therapy. And then a lot of it was about building up the commercial capability of the organization, really, really moving that to the forefront and then being able to build off of that, then to be able to, to get this to be a mainstream frontline therapy for, for drug-resistant epilepsy patients. Did you see this as an opportunity to lead a company that, was, that had all the pieces in place and had the right strategy in place? Or did you see this as an opportunity to lead a company that had very good parts and needed some some restructuring and, and different approaches to things. What was what was your view on the company back then? It had, my, my, my view of the company at that time was it had many of the pieces, but needed some new pieces to, to be added, additional pieces to be added, and some adjustments to really get the company to be able to operate at the, at the level that it was capable of. Um, I think that's true generally for people coming into new roles that it was not, there were a lot of fundamental building blocks that were there product approval was in place, reimbursement was established, the technology had been developed, but there were some gaps and capabilities that were needed and adjustments to be able to, to get the company to be um, as successful as it was as it's capable of being. And you had succeeded uh, Frank Fisher, who was the, really the only CEO for the company, at least the only one I'm aware of. Maybe there was one in the mid-90s that I missed. <laughs> no, he was, the, he was the founding CEO. And, and yes, I, I came in um, follow, following Frank into this role. Yeah. So talk a bit about taking over, if you would, just what's it like leading a company who's been under one CEO the entire time? Do you, do you feel a need to change culture? Do you, do you feel a need to fit the culture that's there? I think every situation is different, but I wonder how you approached it with, with, with Neuropace. Again, and you were, already, you were already working there, so you kind of had a sense of what it was like. I, I did have a sense coming into it. The company had a culture that was a, a really solid one to build off of. There were some fundamentals with the mission-driven orientation of the company, patient first, a, a really strong technology and clinical capability and foundation that we were able to build off of. Um, what I was coming into the organization to do, at least when I when I started, what I my intent was to really build out a commercial capability, commercial excellence, transition the company to, to being a a leader commercially to apply this technology and the clinical data and the capabilities of the organization in a way that increased adoption, utilization, accelerated that um, to be able to enable us to to do more on the on the technology side. So many of the many of the capabilities were there. 
Um, I wanted to keep those and, and nurture those, but also knowing that there were some changes that we needed to make um, to get the company, as in particular on the commercial side, to to be operating at the at the level that it needed to. So those changes that you you felt needed to be made were bringing in the sales teams and just building out the commercial operation, or was there more on the early part of the process, the R and D process, that also needed to, to change? Where were those changes? The changes primarily were in building up the commercial the commercial yep. capability. We yep. had a field team. The company was commercial. We were selling product. There were some changes that needed to be made to the structure, how that team was organized, the strategy and the and the process that we were using to to sell the product, the people in some cases getting the getting the people that were the right fit for um, the organization and the and the market that we're selling into. That was the majority of my focus was about building up that commercial capability, the sales, the sales capability, the marketing capability, the processes that go with that. We were and are selling a new therapy. Um, what we're doing is working with clinicians to get patients that otherwise were not being treated or being treated with drug therapy that was not controlling their seizures to get them to move on to providing therapy, neuromodulation therapy, to be able to help these patients. And developing a new therapy requires a very specific commercial approach that's different than selling a better product or a different product to an existing market. Creating a market requires a different commercial focus. And, and that was my my work, um, was building up a team that was capable of, of developing a market. Well, this is a great opportunity to take a look at the RNS system itself. Talk a bit about what the RNS system does and how does it do it? The NeuroPACE RNS system is a unique device. It's a responsive neurostimulation system. We have a, a device, a neurostimulator that is connected to leads, electrodes that are positioned into the brain. The device is programmed to detect patient-specific abnormal brain patterns that are associated with an upcoming seizure. When the device detects those abnormal brain patterns, it responds in real time with stimulation that can prevent those abnormal brain patterns from becoming a clinical event. The device also records information about those abnormal brain patterns, when those are happening, trends those to the doctor, records the brain signals associated with those abnormal events. What were the brain signals prior to an abnormal event? What were the brain signals after our therapy is provided? We have a database that the data from the device recorded by the device is uploaded into a database that the doctors can use to look at what's happening inside of their patient's brain. That data feedback is used to optimize the way that our device is programmed, the detection programming, the stimulation parameters, and it's also used by the physicians to manage the way the drug therapy is used for those patients to inform and identify what triggers the seizures. Um, many different uses of that of that data, both for our device and also for the overall medical management of those patients. So you're not competing with medication, at least not yet. Initially, you're targeting patients who aren't responding. What's the marketplace like for this? Is there competition? I see on your website, you're Got a comparison between the RNS system and Vegas nerve systems. Is this a space where you've got some competitors? The primary competition for our product is non-use. The okay. majority of patients that have drug-resistant epilepsy are not being treated with advanced with advanced therapies. Hmm. 
Overall, in the United States, there are about 1.2 million people that have drug refractory epilepsy. Less than 1% of those patients every year get some advanced treatment. 99% of them are not getting some advanced treatment. Even for the patients that are being seen within epilepsy centers, comprehensive epilepsy centers being seen by a specialist, on the order of 15% of those patients get advanced treatment. 85% of those patients are not getting advanced treatment today. Primarily, wow. our growth driver is getting more of those patients that have drug-resistant epilepsy to treatment. With that said, there are other devices and there are other interventions that are being used for patients that have drug-resistant epilepsy. There are surgical interventions where the portion of the brain that seizures originate from can be removed, surgically resected and removed or ablated and the, the brain tissue in that area destroyed to, to stop the onset of those seizures. And there are a couple of other neuromodulation devices that are being used for drug-resistant epilepsy as well. The neuromodulation alternatives, the other devices, both use a duty cycle approach where there's stimulation provided on a cycle, um, stimulation for a period of time, pause, stimulate, pause, and that, that blind cycle repeats again and again. Um, nobody else has a approach that's the one that we do, which is identifying abnormal brain patterns, stimulating into those abnormal brain patterns to get them back to normal on preventing those seizures. The approach we're taking means that patients are only being treated when they need to be treated. Most of the time, a person with epilepsy, their brain is functioning normally. On average, our device is providing about three minutes of stimulation per day. The other 23 hours and 57 minutes, the person that has epilepsy, their brain's functioning normally, and we let that happen. With the duty cycle devices, they're stimulating hours per day irrespective of what's happening inside of the brain. And they're not providing that diagnostic data that's so important for the patients and for the doctors to be able to optimize their optimize their care. So let's talk for a moment then about the bigger competitor, which is the lack of people not using this device. I can't imagine I mean, it's such a, a horrible disease. If you're not responding to the medication, you don't really have another option. What is keeping the other 99% or the other 85% and those people in epilepsy centers from using some kind of therapy, yours or someone else's? The primary work we're doing commercially is to get the word out of the benefits of our product, the therapeutic benefits, the outcomes that we're able to achieve, um, which are, are very compelling outcomes over a long period of time, helping the physicians understand, the physicians that are managing these patients understand those benefits, the physicians understand the importance of moving their patients on to be treated and ultimately getting this kind of therapy, our therapy and, and neuromodulation in general, to be seen as a, a therapy that they're proposing and evaluating their, their patients for so that it fits into their way of doing, of doing medicine, practicing medicine. That's a change in mindset. There are many physicians today that aren't thinking about those advanced treatment options. It's just looking at what's the next drug that we're going to try, the next dose, the next combination of, of medical therapies. And neuromodulation broadly, not just for epilepsy, is about getting physicians to think beyond the medical management for those patients that can't be well managed with medicine. But that's a different paradigm for the physicians. And our work within the commercial organization is, is getting the education to those physicians and also to the patients so they can push for the 
the treatment options for those for those treatments as well. And, and we're making making good progress on that. Every year we're getting more and more patients to be treated, more and more physicians starting to use RNS for their patients. It's a process and, and it takes time to change the way for physicians to change the way that they're offering therapies to their patients. But I would think that in this day and age, if you know, if I have a loved one who's suffering from this, I'm on the internet the next day or that day, and I'm finding information about your system and I'm bringing it up to the physician in the next appointment, uh, if not sooner. Are physicians resistant to this? Because I have to imagine patients will cling to anything. Are physicians resistant or is this also a case of, I don't know where the insurers fall in all of this? Is it, is it an economic challenge? I would not say that the physician resistance is probably harsh yeah no, um, I mean, how the, would you the, how would you <laughs> i don't want to put words <laughs> in your mouth <laughs> the the physicians are in a process of really ad- adopting this therapy to have have it be something that they're advocating for for their patients and some physicians are well along that path where they know the benefits of neuromodulation therapy when they have a patient that comes into their practice they're talking to their patients about these advanced treatment options and the importance of moving moving on um, there are other physicians that are not as familiar with the technology or are not as comfortable talking to their patients about those treatment options and that's the that's the work of our group so i, I wouldn't say that it's resistant specifically but it's moving the practice of medicine so that it's much more really advocating for the patients and the need to move on to to additional therapies versus being comfortable waiting and trying another therapy first, another another drug first before moving on, getting out of that cycle of wait and try another drug. That's the the historical momentum that we're pushing against. How long does it take to to determine whether a drug is taking effect or not? Because you're, as you stated, you know the the seizures have come; they may come weeks without it, or or I guess it's I guess it would take a long time to know whether or not a drug is working. It it does take a, a long time for that for that to work. It's typically months. Um, a patient will get put onto a new drug or a new dose of a new drug. They'll come back for a follow up visit three months later, six months later, and adjustments that are happening there. The unfortunate reality for people with uncontrolled epilepsy is that they're being managed on these drugs for many, many years, often, yeah. like, often decades. The, the average patient that received our device implant in the clinical trial had uncontrolled epilepsy for 20 years prior, oh. to, getting, prior to getting our device. So it is a very slow process. And there's a history there of being comfortable with it taking a long time we're working and many people within the medical community are working to change that, to create discomfort with waiting and, the, and emphasizing the importance of moving patients on um, to be treated and to, to have them benefit for all of those years with, with better outcomes. And is there a challenge also? I'm looking at the device itself. I mean, this is a device, it, it looks like any other defibrillator, any other kind of device, but the leads, I imagine they're, they're go to the brain since that's where the treatment is delivered. Is that a hurdle for some that they just, the the idea of brain surgery or inserting something in their brain is maybe too, they need to exhaust every avenue before they'll consider that? For some patients, it it is a decision point. It's a a barrier for some patients. What, What I've found is that when you have physicians that are advocating and and communicating the importance of the therapy and the benefit of the therapy, that patient acceptance is very high. When you have physicians that are not advocating for it, it's easy to find a reason to say no. For these patients that have uncontrolled epilepsy, you have to imagine that 
the world that they're living in. And often these patients have been into emergency rooms and many times the diagnostic process is leading this device to our device or other therapies um, include hospital stays, brain surgeries are often part of that part of that process. And so for you and I that are fortunate not to have walked through that pathway, it's a very different perspective for somebody who's been living with the effects of uncontrolled seizures for, for all of these years. So when, again, we have physicians that are advocating and communicating the, the benefits and the importance of being treated tends not to be a significant factor, but it is that, that first look that we have to overcome of, of why you need to move forward. What's the, what's the reasons to move forward? Yeah, and I have to think that, you know, I think about the, the seizures themselves and how terrifying that must be. But what also comes with that is all the things you maybe can't do because those seizures may come, drive, hold down a job, just kind of live a, a more typical existence. I'm sure a lot of people are enduring that and it would be incentive to, to get back to normalcy. It would be incentive to have this procedure done, I imagine. I'm sure that's a, that's a selling point. Absolutely. Our, our mission at, at Neurobase is transforming the lives of yeah. people that live with epilepsy. And I've had the privilege of talking to so many of our patients that are benefiting from the RNS therapy that talk about the way that their lives have been transformed. Being able to, to move out of a caregiver's house, mm -hmm. parent's house, and be able to live on their own, to be able to, to feel confident to have children where they were not confident to be able to have a family. Wow to be able to, to have a job that they wanted to, that they weren't able to have prior to be able to travel um, in ways that they weren't able to. Every patient has their, their own story and mm -hmm. the, the benefits that go along with this. What we do at Neuropace really does transform lives of, of patients. And that's so central to what we're doing. And it's part of why we are so motivated to get more of these patients that have uncontrolled seizures to be treated because we see how much of an impact it can have on, it does have on patients that, that have been able to benefit from the therapy. And, and just to be clear, is RNS used in conjunction with maybe one therapy, one, one drug treatment, or is it RNS is the sole treatment for your patients who have it? The patients that have a drug-resistant epilepsy generally speaking, are still being managed with pharmaceutical treatment. Okay. They're getting some benefit from the anti-epileptic medication, but it's not enough to control their seizures. When a neuropace device, when the RNS device gets implanted, those patients continue to be on drug therapy. But often the RNS device is used to identify which drugs could they come off of. Mm. The side effect profile of these anti-epileptic medications is profound. Oh yeah. So having opportunities to remove some drugs that are causing significant side effects to be able to control dosage for drugs that have significant side effects. We're always working in combination, almost always working in combination with medical management, but being able to inform that management in a way that optimizes the seizure reduction while minimizing the side effect profile of the drug is what the way that the device is often used. And, and that's part of the transforming opportunities for the for these patients. If you can reduce the number of their seizures and reduce the side effect profile by being able to, to change the way that the medical management is being done, together those make really profound impacts on, on patients' lives. Well, those are some some amazing stories to get from patients. So two more things I want I want to talk about the business in a moment, but I asked earlier about reimbursement. So 
if patients are still taking the meds and this is for at least some of the meds until they can get off them and they're having this done on top of that, how are, how are insurers looking at this? I mean, they look at economically. Are they reimbursing for this procedure? Are you having a difficult time convincing insurers to pay for this? The reimbursement for our product has been well-established for a number of years. It was oh, good. Okay. largely in place when I started four, four years ago in this role. The insurance providers see the benefit of this therapy. The cost of uncontrolled epilepsy is significant to the healthcare system. Being able to, to provide a therapy that controls seizures, reduces the number of those events, has been well accepted and well adopted by physicians. The work we're doing for reimbursement today is supporting expanding indications as we're working within our company to have more patients indicated for the RNS device. In combination with that, we're working with working to expand the insurance treatment for those patients. For our currently indicated patients, reimbursement is well established and the, the benefits of that are, are well established by the by the insurance providers. Okay. Final questions. We've, you've been generous with your time and I, I appreciate it. You took the company public in 2021? Correct. So uh, what was that process like? I mean, it, it seemed like obviously a necessary outcome for a company that's been privately held for 20 plus years for some sort of liquidity to come. What was the process like? And talk a bit about life after going public. I know you went out, your your stock was higher than it is today. That can be said for a lot of companies out there, but I wonder if you come up against any unique challenges that have brought that stock price down. Talk about going public first, and then we'll talk about the post-IPO stuff after. What was that experience like? Yeah, you're, you're right. We went uh, public in April of 2021, a little over two years ago, went, went through that process and completed that process. For us, that was a, an opportunity to bring additional capital into the company. We raised over $100 million as part of the, as part of the IPO, uh, which was very important for us to, to use to expand our commercial reach to be able to support indication expansion studies that are, that are underway to, to broaden the applicability of the RNS device. And it also provided a transition to a new set of investors, a different set of investors that we're working with now that are, that are supporting the company. Um, the process leading up to that was really fascinating process for me to, to take the company through that, through that process, telling the story, sharing the, the benefits and the importance of what we're doing and the expectations that we have about growing the, growing the company, growing revenue, ultimately getting to profitability having that resonate with the with investors to, to lead to a successful IPO. And then following the IPO, you know, it's a matter of executing against that. The last, as I reflect back on the last four years, it's been a very, uh, it's been a very interesting four years in the medical device space going through the financing that we needed to do on private financing when I started working through the pandemic and the impacts that that had on our business in, in particular. Um, and then as we're coming out of that, really putting ourselves on a, on a foundation footing to be able to, to grow from that. The stock market has been a challenging one for companies like ours that are earlier stage revenue, not yet profitable. There's been a, a ride, a roller coaster ride that, that goes along with that. Um, we've been very successful in 2023 and really getting a, a lot of momentum, positive momentum on the investment side, being able to increase the, the stock price as we've been able to demonstrate consistent performance within the business, being able to grow revenue, increase revenue, bring in some new sources of revenue. Last year, we added a, a product line with the Dixie Medical Stereo EEG electrodes. That is a new product line that, that we're selling here for the last two quarters. 
bringing all of that together to, to put us really on a nice revenue ramp growth that has been translated back to really positive performance that we've seen in 2023 on the in the stock market as well. Talk a bit about the view uh, with the Dixie Medical. I'm looking at it right now. I wasn't. I, I somehow missed that. You have the exclusive right to market and sell Dixie Medical Diagnostic Electrodes for epilepsy. Are these used with the RNS device, or are these above and beyond that? We became the exclusive U.S. United States distributor of the Dixie Medical product starting in October of last year. The rationale for doing that deal had two fundamental elements to it. One is. It's a new source of revenue for us with customers that we are already calling on. The, these electrodes are used in the diagnostic process for patients that have un, uncontrolled epilepsy, drug-resistant epilepsy. Many patients, 60% of patients that have uncontrolled epilepsy have focal epilepsy, which is where seizures originate at a specific location within the brain. That's the current indication for the RNS device. For those patients, it often requires that they go through what's called intracranial monitoring, where temporary electrodes are positioned into the brain. The patient stays in the hospital and they use the doctors use those, those temporarily implanted electrodes to determine where the seizures are coming from for that patient. Dixie Medical sells those electrodes that are used for that intracranial monitoring. Almost most of the patients that get an RNS device go through that process, go through that intracranial monitoring process prior to getting our device. Mm -hmm. Most patients that get other localization therapies like the resective procedures and ablated procedures also go through that same diagnostic process. For us, the Dixie Medical is, is selling those products to our current customers, the current centers, the current epilepsy surgeons and and epileptologists, but it's also for us very important to be a call point upstream from our current therapy because most patients are going through that diagnostic process first. That product gives us visibility into the patient pipeline, what patients are working through the diagnostic process within the centers, gives us an opportunity to educate the physicians on treatment options that include the RNS device, specifically the RNS device. Um, it also gives us better visibility into the patients for patient education, patient awareness earlier in the diagnostic process. So a new line, a, a new source of revenue to our current customers and a, a product line that we believe will help us accelerate adoption of RNS therapy as well. Final question, where is Neuropace headed? Is your, the clear path would be you continue to, to sell RNS and that's kind of your primary business continue to try to convince doctors, but are there opportunities for you? And I know you're publicly traded, so you're not going to say too much, but how different might Neuropace look in three to five years than it does today? Will it primarily still be a single therapy company or do you see it being more than that? Our primary focus today is on getting more patients that have drug-resistant focal epilepsy to be treated with the RNS device. We have a tremendous amount of opportunity there. I, I talked about 85% of the patients within the epilepsy centers not getting advanced therapy. That is our focus. The work we're doing in product development is to help enable that. The work we're doing in the commercial organization is to, to accelerate that adoption. That's job one. Beyond that, we are actively pursuing indication expansions within epilepsy. I mentioned that 60% of patients have focal epilepsy. The other 40% of patients have generalized epilepsy. Generalized epilepsy is, is similar, but the difference is that epilepsy seizures originate broadly across the brain all at one time. 
And we're taking our existing therapy, the RNS device and the, and the algorithms, the way the product works and applying it to brain networks to be able to treat patients that have generalized epilepsy. We received a breakthrough device designation for a generalized epilepsy indication expansion. We've started enrollment in our Nautilus study, which is a pivotal trial to expand into generalized epilepsy. We're also working, doing work with the NIH on a Lennox Gastaut study, which is a specific type of symptomatic generalized epilepsy. Those efforts are well underway and, and very excited about bringing our current technology to a broader market within epilepsy, helping more patients that have fewer treatment options. And over time, an opportunity to expand into other areas as well. We were very opportunistic in seeking out the partnership with Dixie Medical, looking where there may be other opportunities for things like that. But primarily it's go after the, mar the market opportunity that we have today with our current indication, expand more broadly into epilepsy, and then planting the seeds for where we could go beyond that. Are there other clinical areas that you could pursue? There are other clinical areas that we can pursue. Right now, we're doing work with a number of institutions that have typically grant-funded research using responsive neurostimulation with the RNS device, with the, the Neuropace RNS device, to treat a variety of other episodic brain conditions, ep episodic brain conditions. Um, those are in the early feasibility, early, early concept phase work. As we get proof points coming out of those of where responsive neurostimulation can have a, a differentiated benefit, um, opportunity for us to pursue those into additional clinical opportunities over the long run. Um, we, the way that I think about it is we have the near term, which is adoption within our current indication. We have the medium term which is expanding more broadly within epilepsy to treat all of these patients that have drug-resistant epilepsy. And then the long run is to take that fundamental approach that we have for responsive neurostimulation and applying that into other brain conditions that, that are undertreated with the, with the therapies that are available today. Great. Well, it's a, this is a very comprehensive look at, at Neuroface. I, I'm sorry to take so much of your time, but it's just a fascinating topic. So Mike Favette, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Great. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, Chris Newmarker, that is a wrap. Uh, once again, how can folks find you out there in social media land? You, know, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. And I am on LinkedIn as well, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. Uh, please do uh, share this podcast episode so folks can uh, can find this podcast, can know of this podcast on social media. And when you do, honestly, please do link with Chris and myself. Even if you don't share it, link with, connect with Chris and myself. Uh, and, um, you know, let us be part of the conversations. We would like these podcasts to, to be the beginnings of uh, of some discussions on social media. So uh, we'd love it if you do you your part. like, Bye again. follow, share. subscribe. I'm not oh, there yet. Oh, I'm not there yet. Oh, Hold on. Good oh, golly. Oh, I'm just telling them to share the podcast episode. All right. I've made that point. Chris Newmarker, <laughs> we have our Device Talks podcast network. What do we want folks to do you with that? Like, follow, subscribe. Good God. <laughs> you are just so <laughs> eager. Uh, yes, like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network. You will receive Device Talks weekly, Intuitive Talks, Avid Talks, Striker Talks, Boston Scientific Talks. And uh, we've got some uh, nothing to announce yet, but but working on some stuff. So, all right. and uh, registration for as I mentioned at the top for Device Talks West is open. Uh, we'll have as uh, our keynotes 
uh, as of the moment, uh, we'll have Fred Kisravi of Imperative Care, major med tech uh, innovator, successful entrepreneur, uh, and Imperative Care is doing some very, very cool very stuff, cool. both in technology, but also in business. And uh, very happy to announce that we have Dave Rosa, the president of Intuitive, oh, who will uh, open up day two, which is actually the day of their earnings call. So he's uh, taking time away from a busy morning to come join us on Device Talks West. So uh, make sure you go to West dot device talks.com or just go to device talks.com and find the conference register before it's mid mid august and uh you'll get in for like 395 bucks which is a steal yeah. chris newmarker it's, it's awesome yeah it's probably like you know like a buck for every person you're going to meet exactly. so like your network's going to grow exponentially from this very small investment so yeah what's stopping you what's yeah, stopping nothing. You? i mean that's like nothing that's like i mean <laughs> It's not. I mean, it's a three. For a conference, it is nothing. For a conference these days, it is, uh, it's two days too. Right. So break that if down. If I went and bought a cup than- of coffee and it was $350, I'd be like, whoa, what's what's going on here? But, you know, this is, it better be like. But- I just shelled out 43 bucks to see a Spider-Verse movie. So, you know, yeah. did, did I build my brand doing that? No. Did I build my network doing that? No. I had a good time, but it was two hours and change. This is two was days. Was it real butter so- on the popcorn? Uh, we didn't do butter this yeah. time. I, I, we shared a popcorn. Nice. The older one doesn't like it. The younger one does like it. Yeah. So I went without. It's yeah. good. It's good. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Th- for 350, you can like, you know, meet 100, 395, 99 cents. I just want to be honest in the advertising. 395. Still a good deal. You can, uh, yeah, you can meet like, you know, hundreds yeah. of MedTech insiders and, you know, yeah. Even like uh, even you know shake hands with the uh, the president of Intuitive Surgical. So there you go. Very nice yes. man. So all right, Chris Nomager. I think we've I think we've sold them enough. Got to be there or be square. There it is. All right, that is a wrap. Thanks everybody for joining us on Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We will be back next week, uh, and then I think we're going to take the week off after that Fourth for of July. the July Fourth holiday. Yep. So uh, we'll definitely be back next week. And uh, we're rolling out new Boston Scientific Talks, new uh, Abbott Talks, uh, new Intuitive Talks. So they're all coming out. So make sure you yeah. subscribe, like, follow, and or subscribe as Chris Newmarker yeah. says so Could well. Be- so, all right, folks. Take care, everybody. Enjoy the summer. Yeah.